0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Historical Institute and our panel debate on uh, the Nazi seizure of powers 80 years on. When Hitler came to power, I was in the bath. That's the smashing opening sentence of Anna Funder's new novel, uh, All That I Am. And uh, it tells the story of Ernst Toller and uh, his, yeah. Time in the Nazi period and his emigration or uh, flight to Britain. Um, Fifty years later, when we commemorated the 50th anniversary, I was in Tubingen, and <laughs> um, at that time, the historical research on the Nazi period had just really taken off immensely. And when we uh, at the University of Tubingen in January '83. Um, ...the university actually held a series of lectures on that topic... ...which easily filled the largest lecture hall of the university... ...about uh, 1,500 to 2,000 people attended. And uh, the topic was then still interesting and worthwhile enough... ...for the uh, Trotskyist group of international Marxists... ...to interrupt every single of these lectures... And uh, with sometimes really very f- yeah, funny uh, but fairly destructive uh, comments. Anyway, I'm very glad uh, that the topic obviously is still interesting enough to attract a large audience in London and uh, when Benjamin ziemann approached me quite some time ago um, whether we should have a debate on this topic, I... Reluctantly, but then very happily agreed uh, because I think it's indeed very interesting to revisit this period after 30 years of really very, very intense research on national socialism and uh, all aspects of the history of that period and uh, with many new as, uh, methods and also opening entirely different fields of research from what was the case in the 1970s. So I'm very grateful that uh, Benjamin Seaman and Chris Scheimann took the lead and put together a a panel of experts. And I'm sure we'll have a very interesting debate on the panel and then with the public. And I leave it to you now to introduce your panel. So thank you very much for coming. And all I can say, you're all afterwards all invited to a glass of wine next door in our library, but that is in two hours. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Well, um, the obvious rationale for this uh, venture... Um, it's quite obvious that there is an important anniversary that we, uh, that's invites uh, an opportunity for reflection and debate. But it's also, as Chris will explain in a minute, this is based on a collaboration that we have been working on uh, uh, for a while, which also involves in one sort of one aspect of it uh, uh, Anthony, who's sitting next to me. At this stage, all I want to say is that I want to thank Andreas Gestrich as director of the German Historical Institute and also the staff of the Institute, in particular Carol Starks, for her um, support in making uh, this event today happen and opening up their house as on. Pr- previous occasions, for not only for scholarship and scholarly debate, which is the main function of the German Historical Institute, but also for hosting such a public event as this one uh, tonight. And i pass on immediately to Chris, who will say a few more words on the significance of the day. Thank you, ben- Benjamin.
2: Eighty years ago, Hitler came to power. No doubt this was a crucial moment. Some would even describe it as a turning point, not only in German history. An anniversary like today is a good moment really to take stock of new interpretations and methodologies to discuss open questions and controversies or to see how its meanings and contexts have changed since the last anniversary or indeed in the long term. And of course the significance of 1933 has shifted over the years, more recently from the preoccupation of uh, the rise of Nazism and the establishment of dictatorship to the focus on racial persecution, on murder, on the Nazis' expansionists, wars, ideas of living space and of course the Holocaust. And of course, the letter uh, was remembered just three days ago uh, during another anniversary, um, of course, the Holocaust Memorial Day. Now, let's be clear there are um, innumerable problems surrounding um, anniversaries, historical anniversaries. There's a danger that they turn into ritualized events that are filled with stereotypes and in this instance, symbolic gestures of distancing oneself from it. And as Benjamin already pointed out, uh, um, we and I recently asked a group of scholars uh, as part of a special journal on this topic to discuss the significance of 1933 for today's Germany. Um, or better, you could uh, describe it as a seizure, the seizures of power, uh, because, of course, these events often at the local level uh, were sparked off from below. Um, And indeed, the contributors uh, observed a growing gap between scholarly knowledge and public knowledge and between scientific research and public collective memory. In short, whilst there is a consensus that Hitler's appointment as chancellor was fateful, there's a sense that this happened a long time ago, that one's own family was normally not involved in all this, and surely nobody could imagine today to to be manipulated, really, by such a racist madman like Hitler. But the emphasis on Berlin is not Weimar or previously Bonn is not Weimar plays down the disturbing fact that 13,757,118 Germans voted in free elections for the openly violent, racist, anti-Semitic and anti-democratic Nazi party. Now, for the aforementioned uh, virtual roundtable, Benjamin and I asked scholars to comment on and discuss a very specific set of questions surrounding 1933. I found the ensuing email uh, discussion, the email exchanges, utterly gripping because they contained critical insights about past and present, about history and memory, And contributors explored many different angles and layers to complex issues, sometimes reinforcing the views of their peers, sometimes challenging them. Well, I think we might well be in for a treat tonight, as this session is a kind of free-style event, because there are no set of routine questions here. Uh, forced onto these uh, distinguished four speakers tonight um, because we simply asked them to reflect themselves for around 10 minutes on this topic. Now, how exciting is that? Um, and all you as audience will need to do is really to engage with the speakers afterwards. And um, and then we are, I think, um, for an, in for an event that will stimulate uh, reflections, learning, new things, and critical engagement about the place of 1933 uh, in today's scholarship and today's
1: society. So back to you now, Benjamin. Thanks, Chris. So all that's left for me now is to introduce um, our panel of four uh, distinguished experts on modern German history and 20th century history, German history in particular, uh, and I will do so in the running order in which they will give their statements, uh, um, starting with Neil Greger, who's professor at the University of Southampton. Uh, and of uh, for each of these uh, speakers I will only, I mean I, we would spend ages listing only their most important publications, so I'll refine myself to confine myself to mentioning only two important books each. In Neil's case, that's his first monograph, Daimler-Benz in the Third Reich, uh, an award-winning monograph published in 1998, and equally award-winning, His Haunted City in Nuremberg and the Nazi Past, published in 2008. Then the next speaker will be Maiken Umbach, a professor of modern European history at the University of Nottingham. For her, I will mention two books, Federalism and Enlightenment in Germany, 1740 to 1806, published in 2000, and more recently in 2009, German Cities and Bourgeois Modernism, 1890 to 1924. Then, sitting next to me, the next speaker will be Anthony McElligott, Professor of History at the University of Limerick. Uh, He is, uh, among other books... Uh, most pertinently here the editor uh, of a volume in the short Oxford History of Germany uh, on the Weimar Republic, published in 2008. And equally important and forthcoming this year with Bloomsbury is his book Hindenburg Hindenburg to Hitler, Authority and Authoritarianism in Weimar, 1916 to 1936. And finally... um, Professor Mary Fulbrook, who is professor at the Department of German, uh, University College London. And again, I will uh, mention, of her many, many books, only the two most recent ones. Uh, the second of which is uh, equally has been awarded the Frankel Prize this year, I think. It's this year's Frankel Prize in Contemporary History. Uh, in 2011 was published Dissonant Lives, Generations and Violence Through the German Dictatorships and published... Uh, I think l- late last year or early this year, uh, a small town near Auschwitz, uh, both books with Oxford University Press. So without further ado, we kick off with Neil for the first 10-minute reflection.
3: Um, well, I, I, I'm sort of very sort of honoured, really, to, to, to be invited to, to open this panel and to participate in it. I take the, the format as, a, as an invitation really not to say something kind of heavily programmatic uh, and heavily sort of self-positioning, but but something which is more about opening a set of questions up which we might um, discuss. It seems to me the discussion is always in a way as important as the, as the outcome. So I'm going to talk in very sort of... J- general and slightly conjectural terms, really. Um, and I want to make three, three general points and then maybe three slightly more specific ones. Um, the first point I'd make is that if one looks back at the writing of the last 20 years or so, I think we can say that we've witnessed a silent historicization of the Third Reich. Um, the emphasis now is overwhelmingly on historical context, on the historical embeddedness of the Third Reich, on the insights we might gain through comparison those those older, ethically charged narratives of of singularity uh, seem to me to have gradually uh, vacated the stage. Um, One can see that most obviously, I think, in the ways in which uh, different dimensions of the Holocaust are connected to wider histories and frameworks of expulsion, um, histories of resettlement, uh, histories of political violence more generally... Um, And most obviously, of course, uh, the emergence of the field of comparative genocide over the last 10, 20 years. Um, I think we can also see that in the ways in which uh, certain ways of writing no longer provoke the uh, furore that they once did. If you go back 25 or so years to the ambrogiart Friedländer debate, where the whole kind of argument was about should one write using the sober methods of historical reflection... Or do we still have to think about, if you like, the limits of representation, as, as Friedländer had it? Um, that kind of polarity has gone now. Um, the contrast, I think, is perhaps with a, a, a forum in the journal German History, which Mike and I were editing at the time that we did last year, uh, called German History Beyond National Socialism, edited by Glenn Penny, where we kind of expected that there would be um, a, a degree of... Uh, hostile reaction to a forum which, in some ways, had some inflammatory comment, I think, and was intended to provoke in an intelligent way. And everyone just seems really to have shrugged their shoulders and just gone, well, yeah, fine, okay." So um, that's an interesting marker. Um, I think, to move on, then, um, it seems to me that, in some ways, an older set of political commitments and an older kind of political engagement has gone out of this debate, as well um, pl- partly that's generational partly that's a reflection of how the memory culture evolved partly I think that's about um, political culture um, partly I think it's also about how academic culture has evolved um, in this country certainly I think people sort of seem to try to avoid these big arguments that, we, that, that, that used to characterise academic work more um, and finally talking generally, um, I think I would want to point to the contrast between an older scholarly focus on the rise of the Nazis uh, driven by this political, ethical impulse to prevent dictatorship, uh, the the motto Werdet in Anfängen would be a kind of shorthand for that and the current greater focus on the afterlife and the the aftermath of Nazism. Um, Once upon a time it seems to me people were uh, driven by the possibility of preventing dictatorship, um, now we seem more engaged with thinking about how to transition out of it, uh, and I think that partly reflects the dynamics of um, you know, how a field has evolved, if you like, people finding new questions. But I, I want to sort of float the idea that perhaps it reflects a more pragmatic and even pessimistic sensibility concerning dictatorship as a phenomenon. Now, those kind of rather sweeping comments, I think, are sort of map onto and are reflected in uh, one or two more specific things, I'd say, about the historiography. Um, the first is the, the sort of, to me, slightly troubling dominance of the word mobilisation as a current kind of concept in the literature – which seems to me sometimes, at least, to carry the implication that the Third Reich and the community which it sought to organise is is there as almost ready-formed before 1933, Um, and that 1933 just provided political confirmation after the fact, if you like, Um, that there's a sense of the naturalness, the waiting-to-happenness of what happens in 1933, uh, which then finds its confirmation. Uh, That's there in the work, I think, of people like Peter Fritcher or Bob Galatoli. Now, I think that underestimates the civil war-like quality of 1932-1933. I think it underestimates the profundity of the violence, the way in which the destruction of alternative political traditions was central to 1933, and the way in which that violence... Uh, set the terms for what came after. Um, Colleagues like Bob Galaterly, uh, I think, understate this. It's no wonder the political friction goes out of the argument if such influential scholars talk about the Germans did this or the Germans did that, as if there were one such homogenous group all after the same thing in 1933. There wasn't. Now... um, one way, then, as, as a sort of final point, to, to reassert the significance of violence to the story of 1933 is, I think, to apply some of the methods of cultural history which weren't really around when the founding texts about the rise of um, National Socialism and the Nazi seizure of power were written. Um, a sort of cultural history methodologies which weren't there when the terrain of the debate was, was fixed. Um, and let me give you two examples, then, um, from the history of the senses, um, in both cases the history of listening or the history of hearing or the history of soundscapes, to suggest that perhaps we should move back away from counting how many people were incarcerated in 1933 um, and back towards capturing the atmosphere of profound political intimidation which uh, accompanied those events. Um, Two, two examples which have struck me in recent writing. The first is the um, from the PhD thesis of Paul Moore um, from Birkbeck a couple of years ago, uh, who's, which I, I remember reading and being very struck by his account of how the sounds of screaming social democrats and communists who were being tortured uh, and beaten up by the SA men echoed up through the internal courtyards of Berlin tenement buildings. Uh, you can only, you only have to sort of imagine the impact of that to realize that the, the the structure of the built environment in Berlin shapes the way in which people uh, perceived uh, the terror right? um, and the second one would then be uh, Carolyn Birdsall's new book called Nazi Soundscapes, which I think is a wonderful uh, attempt to sketch a new terrain and she she underlines how the Um, The symbolic occupation of urban space by the essay in the Depression was, amongst other things, also a sonic occupation. The phrase she comes up with is sonic brawling, by which she means that um, we have to recapture some sense of what it means to hear um, boots marching through the streets or what it means to hear uh, political propaganda being... Uh, broadcast through microphones from the tops of or loudspeakers from the tops of lorries, and if we then um, reframe our understanding of violence away from that kind of narrow definition of how many people get killed or beaten up and broaden it out into thinking about the the atmospheres of intimidation, then we might actually be able to move back to thinking about the ways in which uh, one thousand nine hundred and thirty three is a moment in which uh, one set of political traditions brutally smashes another uh, and sets the terms for what then comes after. So that's where I'll stop with my initial thoughts. Thank you.
4: Um, I'm going to begin by picking up on that that last point about these atmospheres on, of intimidation. I think it's, it's very clear that this is right and this is very important. Um, and yet I'll take slight issue with that formulation that you used in the last sentence there's one milieu smashing up another. You've just subdivided the Germans into, into two groups when you said that too much of the literature treats them as one. Um, it seems to me that one of the achievements of recent literature is very much uh, uh, differentiating this out a lot more, showing how these divisions run through milieus, run in fact through families. It's astonishing how many families uh, had people often of the same generation ending up on, on opposing sides of the political spectrum as it emerged in, in 1933. Um, now, in some ways, the story for those at the receiving end of the violence and the intimidation is relatively clear-cut, um, and it's underpinned, of course, by the systematic dismantling of the democratic institutions uh, that had protected and safeguarded civil and human rights in Germany and that were now being destroyed. But what of what the others? What of those who were, in some ways complicit in the regime uh, uh, participating in the violence, directly or indirectly? Um, now, a lot of the recent research has, has tapped into new kinds of documents, and I guess what historians sometimes call ego documents are central to this. Diaries, photographs of which I'll say a little bit more in a moment, ways in which ordinary people documented their lives. One of the interesting and remarkable things about Germany in this period is that it is a it's a society that's very very deeply steeped in that tradition of producing ego documents all the time. There are long reasons, long long-term reasons for this to do with the nature of German education, to do with the nature of German Protestantism. Um, I won't go into these now. But but what we have is a wealth of these ego documents, and I think historians have only just begun uh, to make full use of these. And that, to me, is one of the most exciting things. One of the things that's happened is that that type of research has very much focused recently on the later years of the Nazi regime. Um, It's really come to the fore in a field that we call perpetrator studies, where we uh, have seen extensive use of, of personal letters, of diaries and so on, that have given us insights into the kind of generation of violence, of atrocities from the bottom up that have really changed, I think, our perception of that field. This is also more generally true about the conduct of the war especially the war in the east and especially the war in its final phase that most kind of paradoxical phase where it was pretty much clear to everyone that the war wasn't winnable and yet all these atrocities continued going on being perpetrated on a mass scale Um, and again there's 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 fascinating new work coming out of this um, nick stargardt's uh, uh, is, is one that one could mention here, but it makes a sense of use of these these ego documents to illuminate the mentalities of of, of those who participated in this effort. Relatively less focus, uh, less attention has been paid as as part of that kind of research, uh, that kind of approach to 1933 itself and its immediate aftermath. But I think there's a general pattern emerging here that that casts new light on 1933 as well. Broadly speaking, the regime emerged for many, of course not for all, but for many in Germany, as a kind of, if you like, an opportunity structure, Uh, something that people seized, they seized the sense of empowerment and agency that it offered, Um, and the the flexibility or the diffuse nature of Nazi ideology, I think, is part of that. Um, It gave a kind of unique scope for lots of individuals who found that they could tap into some aspect of it to... Um, as it were, uh, you know, mobilised National Socialism for their own ends, for their own agendas, to act as Nazis, but with their own and very particular individualism, individual uh, interpretation of what National Socialism actually meant. Um, some of the work that's done on this um, uh, by uh, historians, such as Michael Wild, has drawn attention to the fact that. Violence was very much written into this notion of the Volksgemeinschaft from its very beginning, that violence itself has a huge mobilizing potential, that it has a sort of charismatic function, that people love the exercise of violence, and that that they attach themselves to a regime because it offers them opportunities to exercise violence in this way. Um, But it's not just about violence. I think there's a more kind of a uh, few set of, of, of things that about National Socialism that people attach themselves to. Um, if I can shamelessly plug my, my own work very briefly here, my, my current project has to do with amateur photography in the Third Reich. And I've been extremely struck, first of all, by how much of it there is. Um, it seems that at this very moment, people became absolutely obsessed with documenting every aspect of their lives. Um, pretty much every German family in the 1930s acquired a camera Um, And there's very little that they didn't photograph and often then conserved in in photographic albums with captions, with other things, with newspaper clippings and so on. So creating kind of records of their experience of this regime, which I think provide very interesting insights into that kind of experiential attractiveness of National Socialism that historians ought to do more with. Uh, The technology itself, if you like, um, it's like a social medium Uh, uh, like Facebook today, provided a powerful incentive, I think, to use the kind of macro story of national socialism as a backdrop against which one staged one's own personal life. It, was a, it, it added a sense of sort of buzz and excitement uh, to inject one's personal narrative into the sort of zeitgeist of the time. So the Führer speech going on in the background or the automobile exhibition in Berlin or the Strength Through Joy holiday programme uh, provide a convenient foil in, 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 through which one can lend significance uh, to one's own personal biographical narrative that's documented and self-consciously commemorated in that way. Um, so what, what, what do we conclude from all of this? I think there are, it, there's an important category here that perhaps historians are only just beginning to grapple with, and in that sense I don't think the fire has gone out of the debate, and that is the category of agency. It's been very prominent, as I said, in, in, in perpetrator studies, um, but perhaps not sufficiently yet in studies of everyday life under National Socialism, this idea of agency, of self-empowerment as a very attractive political proposition that mobilized people uh, to participate in some aspects of the National Socialist regimes. A regime. So what do we conclude from, from all of that if we sort of try to assess the general significance of, of 1933 today? In some ways, this lends itself to a very pessimistic um, uh, conclusion, um, People seem to care, many people seem to care much less about rights, about democratic institutions, than they care about that sense of personal agency and empowerment. But perhaps there's a more optimistic lesson to to draw as well. I think in the immediate post-war period, for understandable reasons, there was a, a, a very powerful intellectual temptation to see national socialism as a kind of irrational revolt against the rule of enlightened reason, leading to sort of anti-Nazi politics being rooted in a a very sort of dogmatic conception of a purely rational politics, Habermas's dictum of a kind of constitutional patriotism, patriotism that is only about the formal properties of the constitution of the Federal Republic would be a case in point. But it seems to me political debate has moved on from this and that we've perhaps learned to conceive of a kind of liberal or progressive politics in more inclusive terms that has a space for agency that has a space for the politics of emotion without, in a sense, surrendering these categories to the right and therefore making them so dangerous and seductive.
5: Thank you. Um, I, first of all, I'd just like to begin by concurring with a lot of what both Neil and Mike have said. Um, and just to muddy the waters a little bit, I'd introduce a third group, as we're talking about one group or two groups, now we've got a third group, and that's the group for whom um, everyday life was a life of indifference vis-a-vis the regime. Uh, the people who just got on with their lives, kept their heads down, and um, d- made made the most of what they could under um, sometimes difficult conditions, sometimes not so difficult conditions, depending on where one stood on that uh, spectrum of friend or, friend or foe uh, in the Third Reich. Um And we can see that in internal party reports from the mid-1930s, 1935, 1936, where the um, multiplication of complaints by local party activists of a general demobilization in the Third Reich among the population, not a mobilization as such. Uh, But maybe we might come back to that um, in, in a little bit. Um, well, coming to the title of the roundtable, the Nazi seizure of power in 1933 and its significance 80 years on. I suppose its significance derives from what we think is the Nazi seizure of power, and this was alluded to uh, at the outset by Chris, that um, for historians working um, uh, on this period, uh, those who have continued to furrow, dig the furrows. Um, the, the consensus is that there wasn't a seizure of power as as such. Um, I think the dating is quite important. Um, you know, are we... Let me give you a few examples. Um, it's, the significance changes if we consider the 30th of January as the date of the seizure of power. I don't think it is. Um, it changes again if we consider the 23rd of March, 1933, as the seizure of power when the enabling act was passed, and parliament was sent home for four years, as it turned out, uh, <laughs> almost forever after until 19, after 1945, or was it in mid-July when uh, the one-party state was um, uh, erected, or does it come in August 1934? with the union of the presidency and the chancellorship uh, in the person of Hitler as Führer. Of course, he's known as Führer before that time. So I think the dates are quite important in terms of what what it is we're actually looking at. Um, If we go back to the early part of 1933, now most historians, and I've just been rereading some um, um, uh, some, some of the literature on this, Um, Mostly everybody um, up to quite recently will talk about the the consolidation of the dictatorship in 1933, Uh, certainly by the summer of 1933, uh, if not by the end of 1933, when opposition, political opposition, that is, is effectively curtailed uh, and the Nazis appear to be uh, fairly secure in the saddle. Um, I think the process, though, is, is a lot more complex than that, um, and it depends really what we mean by dictatorship and what was perceived at the time as dictatorship. Of course, in retrospect, in hindsight, we throw our hands up in horror and would argue you know, dictatorship is a terrible thing, and this is what you find in Clinton Rossiter's path-breaking study, comparative study, of constitutional dictatorship, uh, which began life as a thesis and then was published in 1948, one of the earliest treatments of uh, the nature of um, dictatorship um, in America, France, uh, wartime dictatorship, that is, in America, France, Britain, and Germany. And um, in Rossiter's uh, account, as indeed in other accounts at the time, um, contemporary to 1933, um the discussion on dictatorship is a fairly positive one. Uh, that is to say that dictatorship was not seen... As uh, this dark um, uh, dark feature, it was seen as a positive. And uh, in here, uh, in this respect, in this regard, um, the discourse on dictatorship um, uh, ran across the entire political spectrum, from liberals through to conservatives. And of course, it was embedded in the Constitution of the Weimar Republic, in Article 41 uh, on the plebiscitary uh, presidency. So I think the the first point I would like to make is that we need to re-examine, and this is an opportunity perhaps to do so, because it hasn't really been done um, uh, in in the last 30 years at least, um, is to re-examine the political culture, um, uh, the the realm of political ideas um, in the 1920s and the 1930s in order to contextualise the German experience of dictatorship At least in the early years of the Third Reich, Um, for me, the the shift comes towards the later 1930s, in the second half of the 1930s, rather than in the earlier period. And uh, to examine it in that context, this is something that Neil has already alluded to um, uh, when he talked about um, putting uh, much more sort of removing the the singularity of the of the uh, German experience from uh, discussion. Um, And there I think, therefore, we need to, uh, once we can do that, then we can start to look at how um, these different moments, which I would see as stepping stones or uh, parts of the journey, the path towards the type of racial dictatorship underpinned by racial uh, um, eliminationist um, ideas and policies at the end of the 1930s uh, establishes uh, itself. Um, Up until the mid-1930s, there was a broad consensus um, uh, among um, national conservatives and uh, the Nazis um, on um, how the state should be governed, uh, who should be participatory in that, um, um, uh, and that, uh, I think, is a key factor that needs to be uh, borne in mind. I'm not saying it was a complete consensus, but it is certainly by the beginning of the 1930s easily the dominant consensus among the movers and shakers in German political life at that time. Um, And that really requires us to re-examine the realm of um, ideas, of ideology. Uh, It requires us to re-examine the realm of uh, political uh, cultures uh, as well, um, and to move away from this sort of binary division between, say, democracy on the one hand and dictatorship on the other, and to see how they intersect and where they intersect and at what points they intersect, uh, that would be, I think, uh, a desiderata of, of, of research. I'm fascinated by um, uh, the, the cultural turn. Uh, to understanding um, experiences, everyday life experiences um, of um, uh, this period, of the Th- Third Reich. And uh, and I, the, the, the new scholarship that's coming out certainly does open up um, a whole new um, um, aspects of everyday life. But I think what comes out of that also is to see just how unless you're at the end of the terror, (laughs) Uh, how ordinary the context is. Um, um, For most people, as I began um, uh, my comments, uh, for most people, um, uh, it's a period of... They are indifferent towards uh, the regime. Once they get over... And, and in fact, in the early part of the... the, um, of of the Nazis coming to power in a coalition government with the conservatives. In the early part, um, there is a broad national consensus. Here I would disagree slightly. I would say there is a broad national consensus unless you are part of the political opposition, uh, which um, uh, in, in the liberal camp, at least, there was a lot of ambivalence towards uh, the, uh, the, the Nazis in power. Um, if there's a lesson to be learned, um, and if we're taking um, the, uh, the title of the round table to heart in terms of its significance, I think for me the significance is, finally, um, that uh, over the last 30 years or so, um, we have at our fingertips now a much better array of scholarly studies uh, at the local level, regional level, and at the central uh, level, um, which uh, throw a lot of uh, new light and uh, insights into uh, the mechanics of power and how power is uh, achieved, how it can be achieved. Um, it allows us to view or to digest the Third Reich, uh, not so much in the crude black-and-white terms that we used to do, but more or less uh, in, in its what I call the dangerous nuances Uh, And the lesson there, of course, is how easily democracies can be delegitimized, uh, as was the case in the course of 1931-32, can be destabilized, 1932, uh, certainly, thrust towards authoritarianism between 1931 and 1933, and then finally into dictatorship uh, from 1933-34 onwards into the later 1930s. That, for me, would be Um, uh, the lesson uh, uh, that lies in the significance of looking at uh, the um, Nazi – the mechanics of coming to power and the Nazis' uh, role in this uh, in 1933 –
6: Okay. well, um, I've interpreted the question a little bit differently from the other panellists. I was thinking about significance of 1933. How is it given significance by people in their own lives? And although I come to the historiography at the end of it a little bit, uh, I want to look at how people saw it in their own life stories at various different times After 1933. In fact, I completely misinterpreted the question when I very first heard it because I thought, what is the significance of it for me personally? Well, I wouldn't exist if it were not for 1933. My mother would not have left Berlin, my father would not have come to Britain and stayed there from Canada, and they would not have met, married, and produced me. So I'm very grateful in that small sense. and I'm sure there are many people in the audience today who also find that the significance of 33 has a very personal significance for them whether pre or after their birth um, whether in or out of the bath at the time uh, so it, it clearly made a lot of difference to an awful lot of people in the 20th century and still does um, The long-term historical significance of 1933 is obviously massive. Without Hitler coming to power, without Hitler staying in power, without the war and the Holocaust for which Hitler was primarily responsible, there would not have been the Cold War, the division of the world, the world as we know it today. So I don't think we need to belabor the massive significance of 30th of January 1933. We do need to understand the specific points about how was it that knowing... That Hitler was murderous and anti Semitic and racist and deeply reprehensible. The elites of Nazi Germany held him in power. How was it that they, the military, uh, gave their oath of obedience to him in August 1934? You know, these are serious questions. But I want to look at the significance for people before and after. And I want to just talk under three different headings very briefly. and here we have the the usual academic fear of if you open your mouth, you'll go on for 55 minutes rather than 10, but three headings. Um, First of all, what was the significance of 1933 for people during the Third Reich? And here I think we really do have to differentiate very, very crudely, but very, very um, strongly between those who are on the receiving end of Nazi violence from the start and those who are not. Uh, And we can get at their subjective experiences. There are a lot of ego documents. Um, Interestingly, I think what we find from these ego documents is for those who are on the receiving end, 1933, January 1933, made a massive difference instantly. For my mother, she had to leave school in April 33. For the kid who was beaten to death in February 1933 because her schoolmates started teasing her that she was Jewish. For many, many socialist and communist opponents of Hitler, January 33 made an enormous difference immediately. And we can see this in a wonderful collection of essays that's kept in the Harvard Houghton Library. Um, three Harvard professors set a competition in 1940 to write... My Life in Germany, before and after 1933. It was an essay competition, and there are some fabulous essays there. This is before people knew about the Holocaust proper. They knew about killing, they knew about violence, but they didn't know about the extermination camps that were yet to go into operation. And for them, the caesura really was very, very clear if they were on the receiving end of violence. So I don't think we need even to rehearse that story. It was a significant moment what about those who are not on the receiving end? I think here the historiography has got more and more interesting. We've already had mention of the notion of Volksgemeinschaft, Michel Wilt and many others. My own view on this, and this comes from exploring <laughs> these Ego documents at some length, is that for many people who were Aryan Germans or not excluded from the Volksgemeinschaft, you get outward conformity combined with inner disagreement dissonance disquiet grumbling all sorts of variations but constrained behavior that becomes conformist and what is more important in the enactment of new scripts you begin to learn those scripts so all the stories that you get on both sides of the fence the kind of tram stories somebody giving up their seat for a pregnant woman and then somebody else saying no no you can't she's Jewish." or the school stories, racial science, spot the child in the class who doesn't have full Aryan ancestry, or the endless stories you get in accounts of breaking off of friendships, she's not my friend anymore, or I can't be your friend anymore, nothing against you personally, but it wouldn't do to be friends with a Jew. These kinds of stories. People are enacting the new racist script and are beginning to believe it. So I think there is the beginning of a seeping change through new kind of conformist behaviour after 1933, Despite sometimes not, I mean, being mobilised, I think mobilisation is a good term for some people. Some are more readily mobilisable than others and a lot of the research is now showing which generations, who, where, in what groups were more easily mobilised for the Nazi cause than others. And sometimes it is purely behavioural mobilisation but not inner mobilisation. I think these distinctions are being made. Made. I think for those who are not victims of the regime, the real changes in the significance of 33 only come in wartime, or come most of all in wartime. But here again, there are huge differences across different generations. If you're a youngster um, and you only are exposed to serious violence in the very last year of the war, 44, 45, that is an immense caesura in your life. If you're older, if you're mobilized for war in 1939 it's a quite different experience of violence and a different shock to the system so I think all these significations the significance of 33 is quite varying but I think there are some patterns that we can identify if we're careful and if we're differentiated Um, second point what was the significance of 1933 after 1945 we're coming into memory here Um, Again, I think it depends on when was the caesura in your own personal life and when are you remembering and thinking about this and both of these things vary quite a lot. Uh, For many of those who are members of the so-called Volksgemeinschaft, the real caesura is the end of the war the closing stages of the war. This is when they are victims of flight, of expulsion, of rape, of bombing, of bereavement, the mass bereavements, the mass violence and the mass movement of people against their will in the last years, the last months of the war and the early post-war period. This is the real caesura in many people's lives, the time they remember as the worst time of their life. Very often it's the early post-war years, even up till 1948. And the good times both in the surveys carried out by the US military government immediately after the war and in the Institute for Demoscopy surveys in the 50s and in Lutz Niethammer and others oral history projects in the 1980s, the good times are seen as the 1930s and the worst time as the later 1940s. And then the good times begin again in the 1950s if you're a West German, Um, more problematic if you're an East German. So (laughs) we have to be a little bit careful about Germans in this discussion um self-representations of Germans as victims though does also have a history of its own uh, if you're going for compensation claims as an expellee refugee immediately well in the early 1950s in the ardener period you may be playing up your plight in a way that you won't again for many decades until you're in retirement Um, in the 1990s and 2000s when you're looking back on your childhood and when, interestingly, the whole international culture has changed so that victim status is something that is acceptable, indeed good. The whole PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, that whole period from the 1980s onwards allows you to play up being a victim in a way that perhaps you couldn't in the 60s and 70s. So the Germans as Victims itself has a history too. If you were a victim of Nazism and survivor. Again, how you see that period and what is the caesura depends very much on your own life story. I've made a strong point about the significance of 33 if you're writing your life story in 1940, but very often that has Paled into absolute insignificance and meaninglessness if the real moment in your life that made all the difference to your life was seeing your mother being deported from Theresienstadt to Auschwitz, or if the real moment was when you saw your father brutally beaten up and you had to go and look at his body in a Gestapo cell and, and say, Yes, that was my father, uh, you know, as one gets in life stories. And the caesura in people's lives varies very much on when it really impinged and made a massive difference to them. But I think with victims, again, and survivors, um, the way in which this is remembered depends when in their life they're doing the remembering and in what context they're doing the remembering. If you find it too painful immediately after what's been called the anguish of liberation, the moment when you know, okay, you're free, but you no longer just have to think about surviving through that day, you can actually now register the sheer extent of your loss... If if you then find it too painful to think about that in the 1950s and 60s and you don't want to make your children's lives as miserable as your own life has been, you don't talk about it necessarily in the way that you might do in the 1980s and 90s and now in the context of Holocaust Memorial Day. I'm sure many of you have been to events over the last few days or have thought about this when the now very elderly survivors are sort of thinking their mission is to educate for the future and not only to talk about their own personal past. So this remembering significance changes over a long period of time. Let me finally, very briefly, um, mention something about the continuing significance of this past. I think it's twofold. Uh, I think much of what we call collective memory is not. It's really not memory. It's collective representations its historical consciousness and so on but I do think that is a phenomenon which is different from history it's emotionally significant it has emotional associations it matters in a way that history doesn't that an awful lot of people can just read dates and not worry about it um, and it matters that, for example, my, my book A Small Town Near Auschwitz was mentioned. I cannot believe the way in which that mattered to me personally, how emotionally bound up I got in writing that book and how emotionally significant it was for the son of the Nazi about whom I was writing as well. And this history still matters terribly to people who were not there at the time. So it's not collective memory, but it's, it's a past that matters. And I think we have to distinguish between what I call communities of experience who lived through a particular past And communities of connection and identification who have a strong personal connection with that past or who identify for whatever reasons very strongly with selected aspects of the past. So I think that's one way in which 1933 is still unbelievably significant for us today, whether or not we personally live through it. And the other set of questions, which I think were raised by Neil at the beginning, but I want to raise in a slightly different way, have to do with the continuing significance in the historiography. I think as historians, professional historians, we have to think very hard about how we write about this period in order to make it matter. Neil was suggesting there was a historicization that we were less interested in a personal or political or moral or ethical way that we were able to write more objectively about it, that in a sense Martin Prashant won that debate. I would contend actually no Sol Friedlander won that debate, uh, or really he didn't win the debate because I think that debate was actually uh, really crude in some <laughs> respects. I reread it recently and thought it was not well phrased. But I think the issues that Friedlander raised and the issues he raises again in his two-volume History of the persecution of the Jews are really significant. How do we get subjectivities back into history? How do historians portray past subjective experiences in a way that is as accessible? as novelists, creative writers, filmmakers that can reach audiences in the way that Schindler's List and, and so on do and yet remain true to the constraints of the evidence, the facts of the case and make the explanatory arguments that as historians we're committed to doing. So I think the the questions for historians as creative writers in a sense are every bit as significant now, as they were for Friedländer and Braschart, I don't think this issue of objectivity, value neutrality, how do we deal with subjectivity, etc., I don't think any of that has really been resolved, and I don't think neutrality is, in itself, in any sense, objective. So I I disagree entirely with Neil's opening comments, and I leave it open to the floor to discuss. Thank you. (laughs) Can I just very briefly retract one word in my last sentence? I do not disagree entirely with Neil's opening (laughs) comments. I thought the rest of them were great and brilliant. (laughs) I just disagreed with that notion that we'd we'd historicised it. So, (laughs) sorry.